Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Charlotte Bond. While World War II saw greater opportunities for women on the home front, while so many working-age men were away at war, there are many more examples of hard times bringing further curbs on women's rights. We only have to read the daily news to see it in action. But why is this? If you're fighting for survival, be it for your personal survival or something more wide-ranging, do you think you would have the time and energy to think of much else? Too often, hard times are used to justify oppression, which is something speculative fiction writers love to pick up on. In this episode, we are going to dig into the relationship between oppression and survival with the help of Sunny Dean, whose stunning debut novel, The Book Eaters, actually had Charlotte and I agreeing on a book. So we are really, really thrilled to have you with us, Sunny. So why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, I'm Sunny Dean. I'm an autistic fantasy writer. I was born in Texas and I grew up in Hong Kong and then I moved to the, the UK for university and I've been here ever since. Uh, and I enjoy writing really kind of weird, slightly in between genre specific. Uh, and it's really good to be here on this podcast with both of you. Well, yeah. I mean, it really is. Uh, For those listeners who have been with us for a long time will know that Charlotte and I very rarely agree on books. So it was a pretty big deal that we both enjoyed the book eaters. And I hope- Exactly. Yeah, as like a really big compliment. (laughs) In the book eaters, you depict a society that's fighting for survival. And yet it still makes time to oppress its members, most particularly its female members. You know, why do you think that societies that have so much going on still insist on, you know, spending their time and energy keeping others down? Well, I guess that's just almost human nature in a way that we don't think about risk and we don't think about um, consequences in a way that's very logical. We deal with what's in front of us and we worry too much about our own status within society just add a guess. Uh, It was a really interesting first question when I was reading through it. I was thinking, yeah, why do we do that? We waste a lot of time. Um, But I guess we're very selfish, you know, very selfish creatures at the end of the day. And the book eaters being basically templated on humans, they are very similar in that regard. I don't think it's asking to give away too much of the book. If you kind of explain how you came about with the idea of book eaters. They're kind of like vampires who prey on books. I mean, <laughs> where where did that come from? And what made you think this is the perfect kind of society I'm going to, you know, explore series of oppression with them? Um, okay, so that's a multifaceted question. But I guess the, the first bit, we talk about books in terms of food already. We talk about them as being sweet or spicy, heavy or light. Um, I used to say to you know my friends oh I think that book's gonna be like really like a really heavy meal kind of versus something that's a snack uh and it's just a natural extension way to think of of eating them um and then it just pops up in various places there's there's like 
some niche Japanese yokai who eat books. There was this 90s cartoon called The Gargoyles that had a, this mage who eats a book for power and just lots of little pieces like that that all came together for that concept. Uh, and I always really enjoyed it. For the other side of it, with society and oppression, that's just always interested me. I think ever since reading about how societies form, how governments form, uh, this makes me sound like a nerd. I'm really sorry. Um, I, one of my favorite books is The History of Western Philosophy by Bertrand Russell, and he talks a lot about like Plato and Socrates. They were very concerned with the idea of the perfect society and what that looked like, but actually a lot of their perfect societies were really domineering and very unfair. Um, and it's almost like there was this trade-off between a society that functions well and a society that's actually nice to live in. Okay, two things. Never apologise for being a nerd. Uh, and secondly, I have a philosophy degree, so I totally respect your choice of favourite book. Love it. Yeah, it's it's interesting, like, you know, that it's, it, it's human nature and it, it's really depressing, I, I think, that we're so, you know, we're all fighting for survival or, like, we've all got our own shit and yet we still make the time to put other people down. And I think, obviously, we do this on a personal level as well as a societal level, just, you know, going back to school and me being the nerd that I always was, and I am not apologizing for it, <laughs> but, you know, I was picked on. And before I sort of really understood what I was doing, I would then pick on other people because it's, you know, it becomes that kind of learned behavior. You know, you've had bad shit happen to you and then you pass it on down the line and it sucks, but it's kind of a fact. But, I mean, while we're doing this, you know, we have these societies that are fighting for survival. At the same time, just, you know, in, in Bertrand Russell as well, you know, this, this idea that if you had a really thriving society, an amazing society, it feels like they're just as likely to oppress their members than not. I mean, do you think there's anything more to it than just human nature or you know, can there be a thriving society that, that wouldn't oppress their members? Or do perhaps we, you know, does this oppression come from, say, feeling bad? Is that going to make it more common if we feel bad or we're stressed that we're more likely to oppress others? Uh, I think this is going to come down to a little bit of a semantics question. But for me, Society exists to mediate between the conflicting needs of individuals. And if it's not doing that, it's not thriving. It's not serving its purpose. Uh, and I think where we go wrong is people get caught up in, in society functioning for the sake of it. Like th this idea that people need to make prop society up. And that that's, to me, very backwards, the complete opposite of what society is supposed to be doing. So I, I feel like a society which does oppress its people actively is not thriving. Uh, it might be functioning, but it's not thriving and it's not going in the right direction and it's ultimately self-destructive. Um, I think we could have a society that functions and thrives. Um, I think we are perpetually one generation away from utopia, but that would just require people to stop being assholes for like a few years and we can't manage it. So you know, happiness is always around the corner, but we can't make it happen, um, which is maddening to me, but <laughs> that just seems to be how we are. Yeah, I uh, 
I just always remember very early on in the days of the internet when I was still a huge Will Wheaton fan, and who am I kidding? Still am. But he just always used to say, don't be a dick. Like, why is that so hard? Just just don't be a dick. And uh, yeah, I, I still have to say that I ask the same question every damn day. <laughs> why can't people just not be dicks? And then he got chased off the internet by dicks, sadly. <laughs> I thought that was really fascinating what Sonia said about we're perpetually one generation away from utopia, but we just have to stop being assholes. That was one of the things I really liked about Star Trek Next Gen. Um, it was the idea that they'd given up money, they'd given up, you know, sort of, it was almost like socialism. You know, everybody did a job to move the human race forward. And I kind of went, that sounds so obtainable and yet so impossible just because of our own nature. Um, it is and in a weird way, that it kind of made less sense than Sonia's book. So Sonia's book obviously has a slightly different race who, you know, are they have lots of oppression. They're not really thriving, all this kind of thing. And I can so much more imagine that in our future than I can Star Trek. And it, it's both, it, it's very depressing, really. <laughs> but, you know, the only sort of futures we imagine are the ones that are pretty rubbish and Star Trek Next Gen is like wonderful but unattainable and just a family show. Yeah, I do, I do think Star Trek, off, I know it's a bit off topic, but I do think Star Trek offering a vision of the future, which is hopeful, is actually one of the things I like best about it that I think is very important. And just like having grown up very conservative and stuff, you know, one of the things you run into is that conservative people can't imagine what socialism looks like, what a functioning kind of socialist society would, would be. Um, and you do actually have this example. You can point to it and be like, well, it would be a bit like Star Trek if it if all was going well. Uh, I think we might have to wait for our Vulcans to come and help us stay on the straight and narrow, though I'm not sure we can do it on our own. But then the whole point of the Vulcan, surely, is that they are horribly logical. And again, just coming back to your books on you, everything that happens is perfectly logical. And, you know, the idea of sort of farming women out and into different marriages so that they don't interbreed so that everybody gets a chance to increase their family and all this kind of thing. It, it's all wonderfully logical. It's just when you boil down to it, it's not very humane. It is very logical. And I guess that reflects some of my reading uh, some of the Greek fathers, when they talk about their perfect societies and you read through them and they sound so logical and they don't consider the human cost uh, and they don't consider what the societies would actually look at. And to me, the book eaters not having a lot of imagination, but having a lot of access to information. Um, I felt like that was the kind of society they'd make that looks good on paper, but is just really brutal when you act it out. Because um, there's lots of discussion on it. But if you look at like Plato's philosopher utopia it's really nice on paper and it's really horrible if you actually see it in practice um and if you ever get the chance joe walton wrote a series of books called the just city which is yes. like a fantasy novel about <laughs> what what that utopia would actually look like and how grim it actually would be that you know some things in it work really well but a lot of things in it don't uh, and i think the book eaters are kind of running into that but they just don't have the ability to do better so for me, a lot of this came down to education and, you know, you, you were making a lot of kind of references to the fact that throughout history, you know, lack of access to education has been used to oppress people. And, you know, as you say, these sort of, these book eaters, they, they have so much access and, 
I don't know, in a way I was kind of jealous, like the idea of just being able to like read a book and then forever just like knowing that and completely absorbing that and being able to access that, <laughs> you know, completely every time I wanted to. Um, but then you have that kind of control over who gets what books and, you know, the, the, then it is access to, to education and how you can use selective education in order to keep people down, in order to, you know, produce the kind of pliant uh, people that you you require for your grand design of society or whatever it is. I mean, why did you want to explore the control of education and the access to education the way you did? Uh, I think it's just perpetually interesting to me both my parents were teachers uh, I mean I have issues with my dad but he did read a lot of philosophy um, and in fact he studied there's a whole branch of philosophy called the philosophy of education and that deals with why we learn what we learn and how um, and everything the things we don't think about we take for granted like oh you've got to learn maths and English and you learn them at these ages and that's actually the product of someone sitting down and going what is our educational philosophy and how are we teaching these subjects um, yeah, again, like kind of Aristotle and Plato, they had these ideas that if you could teach people in the right way, they would grow up to be the right people. And I think the Victorian British people also thought that if you could teach people in the right way, they won't grow up to be evil, poor people who go to workhouses and um, become drunks or something or the other uncharitable things that they thought. And I guess in my personal life as well, I had a very strict kind of conservative upbringing that really changes how you think about reality because the education you receive is you know, that's giving you the terms and the ideas to process the world that you encounter. So that even if you have knowledge, you know, it's seen through that filter. Um, everything you read, everything you're exposed to is seen through a particular mindset. Uh, and I've, I've really struggled growing up with questioning how much of what I believe is a result of how I've been taught versus my actual opinions, if that's even a thing. Uh, and there's no solid answer on that. But I think just the whole subject of how we learn what we take for granted or what we know is really interesting to me. You've been talking about obviously growing up and things that you read, things that you learn. I'm afraid I know very little about philosophy, but what I do know about is fairy tales. And I loved how you interwove the idea of fairy tales within this, or more particularly the idea of princesses. And as far as I'm aware, and feel free to um, challenge me. There aren't a lot of princesses in philosophy. So where did this idea of princesses and showing what it really would be like to be a princess that is handed around and is as oppressed in real life as they are in the fairy tales, where did that idea come from? Uh, yeah, from reading fairy tales, I think. I did. You go up reading these things and you just take them for granted. They're just stories. And then you become an adult and you look back on that and you think, oh, hang on, there's a lot going on here. Uh, I think forced marriage is the norm for princesses and stories. They they don't have a lot of options. They occupy this very weird place between being privileged and also not having any choices. And their one purpose in life is to get married. Uh, and I don't think they really even, like Joe Walton's talks a bit about how some society's consent is not even a thing because you just don't have a choice. You know, the whole structure of society is against you. And that's very much the case for princesses and fairy tales. Their life is about marriage and that's it. And they're just like a prize or a plot point. Yep. 
That makes me think immediately of Aladdin when Jasmine turns to them and, you know, when she overhears Aladdin and Jafar sort of talking about her as, you know, and she says, I am not a prize to be won. And I think that's, uh, yeah, it echoes very closely with what you're saying. But you do address choice um, quite dramatically in, in the book and, you know, it's sadly something that is very much on people's minds. It is something that we are dealing with at the moment, unfortunately. You know, the oppression and through reproductive rights and just basically people deciding that women don't have a choice of their own. So obviously, I mean, this feels very timely, but what did you hope readers would take away from your exploration of this subject um, in particular? I mean, first, firstly, when I first started writing it, this is like four years ago, I remember actually struggling with thinking, uh, is this novel even going to be relevant? Are people going to find it ridiculous? Uh, not the book eating bit, because obviously that is kind of a ridiculous idea, but the whole kind of forced marriage, forced birth aspects of the plot. Um, and then as time has passed, unfortunately, it's not ridiculous at all anymore. That's become very relevant, uh, which is very sad to me. It, you know, it feels like we're backsliding 50 years. But um, I think my goal wasn't necessarily to convince anyone of a particular point, just to illustrate what some of the complexities of life look like. My experience of talking to people who don't support reproductive rights um, for pregnant people is they have a kind of naivety about what's going on. They don't really understand the nuance of human existence, what life can look like, how a whole system can be against you, how everything doesn't just boil down to a simple yes or no choice. Um, so when I was younger, I used to think that I was like a really black and white person and I was really proud of this. I would think, oh yeah, there's no such thing as gray. There's only black and white kind of next to each other. And then I got my autism diagnosis and found out that black and white thinking is just an autistic trait. So for the whole of my adult life, I try to move away from black and white and to see nuance and to paint nuance and to look at it all the time because I'm not innately good at looking at gray. Um, and I think lots of people aren't, but maybe it's a little bit harder for autistic people. So I guess I just want to show shades of gray and just to spark discussion and challenge people to think about it, not necessarily to have a specific opinion, but just to rethink their opinion and critically analyze it a little bit. I mean, that to me really speaks to your interest in philosophy because that's sort of one of my big things is that I just like to get people to think about things. And that's why I think it's important to, to talk about issues and you know have a dialogue and it's I suppose one of the reasons that I don't get on in this world where you know people take like a one tweet and decide that that's you saying some other thing and that there can't be nuance and you can't hold many different ideas in one time and, and it's just insane uh so yeah I I appreciate that you know the the trying to to understand the gray areas and explore them as well but thinking about that you know, as you, you mentioned that there's obviously like with princesses, there's a lot of like arranged marriage or forced marriage um, tropes and things like that. I mean, when it came to choice and agency and, and the lack thereof, were there any particular tropes that you hoped to be in dialogue with in, in the novel? 
Yeah, so I think that is a hard line to walk. Um, I guess one area that I spent a lot of time on and a lot of rewrites on was Devon's marriage ceremony. Um, that's minor spoilers that she's she has two. So her first marriage ceremony where she goes into it willingly and she is excited, but it's very morally dodgy to read, I think, because she's basically been groomed for that kind of life. Um, and I think something that's hard to get across to people sometimes um, is that kind of as before, choice is not always a straight yes or no. Our answers are very weighted by social expectations uh, and social training. Um, and that consent can mean really different things. It, you know, it's just the gray area of that because it, it could have been a scene, I guess, where, um, you know, in your traditional fairy tales, when the princess doesn't want to marry the ogre, she makes that very clear and it's just black and white. Um, you know how she feels about it. But in Devon's case, she's in a society where she's not really got the option to think about any other options. Um, so she doesn't know what she wants. And that's a really hard thing to navigate and to educate people on, um, both people who are in the system and people who are kind of judging someone like Devon and saying, oh, well, she's made her own bed and there's lying in it kind of mentality, if any of that makes sense. <laughs> no, totally. And it goes back to the whole, you know, control of access to education and control of what books people can and can't read. And, and yeah, I mean, just look at Russia at the moment, you know, that the Russian people, most of them don't even know the real reasons for the war or what's actually happening in the war in Ukraine. And so to say that the people in Russia support the war in Ukraine is kind of a, yes, it's true in one respect, but if they don't have all the facts, how can anyone say yes? You know, and that is, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I see your point entirely. I was interested in what you just said about the idea of Devon being groomed for her marriage. Um, it made me think about exploring survival of a species versus exploring survival at a personal level. Because obviously, <laughs> yes, Devon is groomed for this, but she's kind of groomed for the greater good, if you see what I mean. Um, so I wondered you know, when you were putting this together and, and thinking about sort of survival on a personal level and survival of the species as a whole, um, how is it that a society on the brink of extinction differs from, say, just one person fighting for their own survival? What did you bring together when you were writing this book? What elements did you think about? Um, this is my chance to get a Star Trek quote in. I guess so Devon society is thinking about the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few. She's the few and she just doesn't matter in the structure of her, her own society. They can't consider that Devon's needs. Uh, the patriarchs just can't factor that in, which is why they're really unequivocal telling her that when she protests. Uh, but she herself, you know, she's fighting for her own survival. She can't consider theirs. And in a way she is very self-centric. You know, she thinks about herself and her son to the exclusion of other people to a point which is maybe unhealthy, but she's been put in that position where she has to choose between those things and she does favour herself. Well, thinking about Devon and, and the quests and the trials that she goes through in the book, her main quest is to save her son at all costs. In contrast to the, the boy's father, who wishes to pretend the child just never existed. So that's quite a, a feminine role that you often find, you know, the mother desperate to save her son from the clutches of something terrible. 
But what would a narrative where the father rather than the mother was the one who was the one willing to do anything to save the child? I mean, I was just thinking about, obviously, you wrote, you say, Devon has two marriages and the fathers are kind of interested, but not emotionally attached. So, you know, why did you pick to have it as a mother? And would it have been a completely different story if you'd written it with the father being the one going all out to save the child? So I think the narrative story would be basically the same, but I do think the reader response would be different. Um, Book eaters just sometimes get comments or criticism for being unnecessarily violent or Devon being very cold and difficult to relate to. And every time I read that, there's a kind of snarky part of my brain that wonders if people would think that if she was a man or presented as a man. Um, and there's something there about we expect men to react more violently or extremely in those situations and have it be okay uh, that I find a little iffy, I guess. Um, so in that sense, it is partly deliberate. I felt like she was the harder choice almost. Not that she would feel protective of her her children, but that she would react so violently in trying to protect them. Um, I think it's harder to relate to that for a lot of people if it is a woman and I wanted it to be more difficult. I mean, I would love to actually see like an agender, a transgender parent-child duo someday, but I'm not at all equipped to write that, so it can't be me. Um, But I would love to read it. Uh, Otherwise, I think you have stuff like The Road, kind of Cormac McCarthy. There's a little bit of that going on, the the dad-son duo, which is really cool. Um, I do think, yeah, the the main effect is the reader reaction rather than what happens in the story, because you could kind of transpose a guy for a lot of it and it would still work. You were talking about how a reader response might change, you know, if you had uh, a mother going all out or a father going all out. And another thing that struck me sort of very gendered within the book and something that we see a, a lot of because of the political climate is that the whole role of reproducing and the whole power, I want to say, of reproducing is in the hands of the women. It's the women who are key to the reproduction. I kind of wonder why there aren't any books out there where men are the key to reproducing. And I I don't know whether it's because, you know, it's so close to real life that women are being oppressed because of their way to reproduce that it just rings true in a novel or whether it is impossible for men to be at the centre of a reproduction argument. You know, if there was only a few men that could, you know, fertilise the women, you had thousands of women, but only like three men (laughs) who could fertilise it. Would that, what kind of a novel would that look like? You know, is that something you considered when you were trying to figure out how the um, book eaters would reproduce? Um, so I think I think you get something a little bit like that in, I hate to say it, The Postman, um, which is one of the worst films I've ever seen. Is that with uh, Kevin Costner? Yeah, you uh, should watch it. It's like a drinking game. And just every time he, he has a bad Shakespeare quote, you can take it <laughs> off. But uh, it, there is a little bit of that with like... I think they mention it briefly that not all the men can have kids or something. And that's their excuse for why all the women fall over him. Sounded a bit suspect to me, but anyway, um, yeah, it's not very common. I think you could do it. I think any idea like that could be done. Uh, I tend, I mean, just speaking for me, I'm going to sound a bit like a misandrist. I don't enjoy centering men in books. Um, nothing against them, just, you know, if, the, if it doesn't make sense for them to be there in the plot, you don't want to shoehorn them in. So I think women are my default. That's why I default to writing and what I'm default to being interested in. 
uh, at least that constructed role in society. Yeah, it's it's interesting for me when I thought about when I was writing this question, I was thinking for me it's potentially reader expectations and reader responses. I feel I had thought they would be a little bit different from from what you were saying and it didn't occur to me about, you know, Devon being violent um and and to me I I didn't find her cold or you know, unsympathetic or, or you know, be, uh, I found her completely relatable. What I found, what I thought might be difficult would be portraying a male character as being so fiercely emotional and protective. I felt like a lot of readers wouldn't connect with that, um, you know, as well as, I, I, which I suppose is sort of, kind of the same, you know, the a different side of the same coin, you know, if they don't expect women to be cold and calculating, they also don't expect men to be, you know, responding very viscerally and emotionally. Uh, I can think of books where I think it's been touched on. Uh, so Children of Men by P.D. James, the, the main character in that is a, a man and he's got this very complicated relationship with parenting um, and not the film. It's nothing like the film. Not that the film's bad, it's just a completely different plot. Um, and in that book, the the male main character with his complicated relationships to parenting and his, his own daughter, he's trying to help this woman who's like the first person in 25 years or something to have a baby. Um, and that's really, in, I mean, to me, that was a really interesting dynamic. So it, it, there, there are kind of niche examples where I can think of it being done, or I guess like Kings of the Wild, which is ostensibly about a guy going off to rescue his daughter in a fantasy comedy uh but it is less common maybe um i think maybe parenting in general is less common and you're starting to see more mothers in sci-fi and fantasy it would definitely be good to see more fathers or both um i think we're very (laughs) parents are very underrepresented we're just more of a hindrance to the story and the 19 year old hero he needs to do things without getting disapproving notes from his parents in the background if that makes sense when i was reading the opening bit where um i think it's okay to give a few spoilers to the opening chapters where devon is bringing people back for her son to feed on in in one way um and you know how she how she selects them and the care she goes to and sort of all the thought she puts into it. That reminded me of um, Let the Right One In, which was a really good film. Well, the original Icelandic one, um, not the American remake, which I haven't seen. Um, but in that, you've got a young female vampire, like really young, like sort of maybe eight or nine, and she's looked after by a man who's not her father, and I won't, just in case you haven't seen this marvellous film yet, I won't give you spoilers to who he is and what his relationship is with her. But I was thinking about what you were thinking with um, Devon and being violent in the way that she kind of goes out and chooses these people and protects her son. I got something similar with Let the Right One In because the older man, he is violent, but it's a very sort of clinical violence. He goes out to get people for um, this girl to feed on and he tries to make it quick. He tries to drain them efficiently. He tries to, you know, do it with minimum fuss. And it's just that that really weird idea of taking, you know, the practicalities of parenting and putting it into something really violent and going, well, I'm a kind and caring parent, but to do that, I have to do this really horrible thing. And it just struck as a chord with what Devon was doing. And I thought it was a really interesting thing to explore. 
Yeah, I so I have seen that film. I do really like it. Um, oh, sorry, I'm thinking about what to address first. So yeah, the the moral dilemma in vampires is what attracts me to them. Uh, ages ago, someone on Twitter said, oh, you can't do anything fresh. And I, I don't agree. I think that ethical dilemma of doing something horrible to survive is, is always interesting. Uh, I did think about the Let the Right One In, someone else writing it. Uh, I'm a little cautious of it because the book is a lot darker than the film. I'm not sure if you've read it. I haven't, um, but I'm going to now. <laughs> okay. I don't want to say any spoilers, but but the, the guy working for the, the vampire kid is very messed up individual. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. Not all the readers share my opinion on this, but I think that Devin fails. I think she is basically a neglectful parent a lot of times, bordering on abusive um, I think she tries very hard to break the cycle of abuse that she's grown up in. I think she tries very hard to parent without having a good parenting model. Uh, but I don't think she's very successful. And I think without, again, going into spoilers, she kind of fails in her one goal um, towards the end, One some of the things that happen. And she doesn't necessarily recognize that it's failure, but... To me, when I was writing it, I thought of like, yeah, Devon's not succeeded in this one thing that she wanted particularly to protect her son from. And um, that means that she's done a lot of this stuff for maybe no reason or not as good a reason as she hoped. Uh, and whether or not you think the cost balances that out or not is up to the reader. Um, different people have inter- different interpretations on, on the ending. Some people think it's more hopeful than that. Well, I'm intrigued. You say that she fails at the end, and obviously we won't go into spoilers about how she fails. But when you started writing this and you started writing a character, did you know that she was going to fail at the end? Or was it something that kind of crept up on you as you were writing it and you went, yeah, she's she's no good. It's all going to go horribly wrong. It crept up on me. I think I always had this idea that she would succeed in plot terms at certain things and that she did do that. But like Devon, I kind of lost sight of the cost of what she was doing and whether or not she'd actually won anything by the end or if the cost had just been too much. And I think when the novel finished, I was kind of doing like a, a body count. Um, when I first met my partner, I remember one of the things he asked me about the book was like, Oh yeah, does, does anyone die in your novel? And I thought, Oh my God, uh, like 40 people. But, uh, when I got to the end of it, it was kind of this moment of awareness that actually, I'm not sure this is a victory. It's a bit of a Pyrrhic victory. Um, So it definitely did creep up on me some. Okay. Talking about winning and costs of things. I wanted to bring us back a little bit to, to survival. You know, Charlotte naturally took us off on a family tangent. That's her thing. All right. I'm going to bring it back. Um, So it's just interesting to me because like oppression and you know how it plays out especially in your book it kind of has tends to have one of these kinds of elitism mentalities you know us versus them and you know it has part of a society that manages to oppress people manages to make you know themselves somehow you know i am better than you for x reason but this you know, this is a tricky subject to navigate. And, you know, I was just wondering, like, what were you most wary of when trying to kind of come up with that? Or, you know, and also what, why did you want to create the 
the differences and and the the us versus them situations that you did create you know what were you hoping to to address with that uh, I'm not sure that I'm wary in the the sense that like I'm, I would be cautious to not sound supportive of that ideology because I'm not supportive of it. But I think I do have, ex- I think we all have experience of growing up with it to some degree. And I think especially if you go up in religion, you do grow up believing you're kind of chosen ones and working through that on my own and that I could draw on. Um, but I think that it's a part of human existence that we all create stories about ourselves. And there's a lot of kind of psychological research on that. We, we think of ourselves as being in a story. We have a narrative that we believe about ourselves that we, that helps us to basically deal with our lives. If that makes sense. Um, an example I used to use is I, I had this friend of mine. He was, he's a lovely guy, but basically every relationship he gets in, he, he starts out saying, Oh, this guy's the one, this, this is the, you know, the perfect love of my life. And then he breaks up with his boyfriend and he was like, Oh yeah, there are problems all along and we weren't good friends and it, it was terrible. And he does that kind of with every relationship. And it's because he's creating and rewriting this narrative of himself that makes sense in his head and I think with the elitism stuff, people are doing that as well. They're writing this story about themselves where they're thinking of themselves. They have this place in the world that they fit into and there's a purpose to it. And all the things that they do and all the things they believe in have all these reasons and all these meanings and motivations behind them. And I think that also comes back to survival because, you know, for for a lot of us, and I think a lot of people who who love science fiction and fantasy, especially, well, you know, certainly myself, I shouldn't speak for everyone else. You know, I was often an outsider. I often felt like I didn't fit in and, and so on. So as a kind of survival technique, when I was younger, I would sort of think, well, you know, I am with the cool people because we have imaginations and the other ones who don't like me and are mean to me, they're just boring because they don't have imaginations and, and, you know, creating an us versus them, you know, it not only creates your own kind of community by saying I am part of this or, you know, they are different to me, but, you know, it just, it's a way of, of getting through, hard times i think you know if if you can say someone is being awful to me i'm being oppressed by someone or or something but i am of a community of a group i think it, it works both ways you know in the sense of it's used for like to oppress but it's also a way to survive the oppression um, yeah i think that that's really accurate um i don't know if you've studied the history of religion much but no. one of the things i found really fascinating is um in judaism people didn't used to believe in heaven uh that used to be if you were a good person god would give you a good life and this became very difficult when you know when people started being persecuted horribly on a kind of genocidal level then they had to invent this idea that well god was testing them and there would be a reward in the afterlife and they would go to somewhere and there was something beyond this life to live for and they've reinvented i don't sorry that sounds really insensitive but they kind of reworked their beliefs to have that sense of we're chosen we're special we're separate and that continued on into christianity that you know that same sense of it so i do think that there's something in that that's very protective that we rewrite our understanding of ourselves and 
um, reality can be what we need it to be almost. Uh, definitely in like politics, there's always all this discussion of like, oh, what's the narrative? What's the story? People need a story to process their facts, I think. And we prefer a story that's kind to us and tells us what we want to hear. And, you know, puts context around those facts that make sense in our worldview. Storytelling is just another form of survival in a way, you know, for more than just authors, for those of us who are like, well, I have to write, I have to create stories because that's just in me. It's more than that. I think it's in everyone. And without stories, without the things that we tell each other and tell ourselves, um, we just couldn't exist, which is also, you know, as you say, religion, you know, the oldest religions in the world were basically to explain the world around us when we didn't have science and things. We just had stories. And yeah, we had some brutal stories like, oh, this one castrated his father. And then that's why, you know, we we have the heavens because he arched up in pain and then the blood dripped into the ground and produced this and that. And, you know, it's it's quite horrific. And I, I have to wonder about some people's imaginations, but cool. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, they are stories that, that make sense of the world. And, and sometimes in the scariest of places, yeah, telling a story is the only way to survive. Yeah, I do think we're getting better at it, though, if that's any consolation. Um, I think a few years ago, I watched this TED Talk with James Flynn where he talked about how the way that we learn things is changing, which is really cool. And it used to be, you know, if you asked someone um, from a previous generation, uh, what would you do if you found brown bears in the North Pole, they would say, that's silly. There aren't brown bears in the North Pole. And kind of, he was talking about how our ability to understand hypothetical situations is improving and we don't think of the, the world as being so concrete. Um, and I, I think sci-fi and fantasy is a big part of that. It's, it, you know, like Star Trek, it gives us options. It shows us what the world could look like, even if we don't know how to achieve that yet. Uh, and I think for book eaters, that's a big thing for Devon is to realize that she, her imagination is limiting her. Uh, that she assumes the world can only be a certain way. And uh, she has to really kind of take a leap of faith that things can be different and that she can change her life. Okay. For for a dark novel and a, quite a dark theme, I think that's a really nice, uh, hopeful message there. But yeah, when, when we embrace our imagination, that we can change things and... Yeah, and to all those people who are always like down on science fiction fantasy readers or whatever, and there's you know there's always things going around saying like oh well literary people who read literary books are you know somehow more you know emotionally developed or I don't know whatever nonsense that tends to go around. Hey, I like to think that yes, speculative fiction readers and writers are out there actually imagining a world that is different from what we have. And that's freeing and it has the possibility to not just engage with the issues at present in different ways and get people to think about it in different ways, but actually to demonstrate what could be if we could change the world. So I think that's a very nice place to end things. (laughs) Oh, thank you. It was really interesting conversation. Thank you for joining us. And uh, yeah, and the book Eaters is out soon. And as I said, Charlotte and I both loved it, which is really seriously rare. So (laughs) 
I think that gets like extra thumbs up from us. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.